Now let's turn to 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, and we want to continue our studies in this book. You'll recall from our prior studies that um, the church in Corinth was a church that was torn by dissension and division. They uh, couldn't or wouldn't get along with each other. They were squabbling and fighting and dividing into various uh, factions in Corinth instead of acting as a unified body. And Paul points out that what underlay their problems in Corinth was a dependence upon men. They felt that it all depended on men, a man's power and a man's wisdom. And that would be an, a point of view that would be easy to come by in Corinth because Corinth was a city that was impressed by what man could do. Uh, Corinth was a busy, bustling, metropolitan area with a great deal of wealth and education, culture. They had beautiful buildings and lovely statuary, and, and they were impressed with what people could do. But if they really took a look at their surroundings, they would have understood what, what man eventually does when he acts on his own wisdom. They would see the despair and the lack of meaning in life, the emptiness that pervaded that city. It's what Paul refers to in chapter 1 when he asks the question, where is the debater of this age? Where is the wise man? Where is the philosopher? Look what the philosophers have, have accomplished. Outwardly, Corinth was, was uh, wealthy and cultured, Inwardly, the quality of life was declining. And so it concerns Paul. He wants to, to uh, encourage the church in Corinth to start acting on another basis, to act upon the wisdom of God rather than the wisdom of men. And uh, these two ideas are set in contrast throughout the first four chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians, the wisdom of God and the wisdom of men. Now Paul begins in chapter 2 with a brief autobiographical section, the point of which is that Paul himself did not act out of man's wisdom and power. He says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in meekness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. You can see that in this section, Paul is talking about his own ministry. And he begins by saying that his message was the simple proclamation of the gospel. He simply preached Jesus Christ and him crucified. He didn't philosophize. He didn't psychologize. He just presented the gospel and all of it. Not merely Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ and the cross. It's possible to teach Jesus Christ as an ethical system. There was a movement in the Bay Area when I lived there called the Teachings of Jesus. And people met in homes and they discussed certain portions of the Gospels from which all references to the crucifixion had been, been expunged and taken out. They simply studied the teachings of Jesus as, a, as another philosophy, a system of ethics. Paul says, we didn't do that. 
We presented the whole gospel, Jesus Christ and the cross and his death, burial and resurrection, even though that was offensive to people. We just kept it simple because that was the truth. Some of you may know who uh, Paul Tillich was. He at one time was probably the most eminent theologian in the world, not a believer. He says in the preamble to his theology, I have never had a conversion experience which at the outset disqualifies him from talking about God. He doesn't know God. But yet he's a very, very learned man, taught for years at the University of Chicago. And uh, the story is told that uh, on his death, he appeared at the gates of heaven, and St. Peter was standing there as the guardian of the gates. And uh, Peter asked Dr. Tillich in Jesus' words, Who do you say that Jesus is? And uh, Dr. Tillich said, Well, theologically, he's the ground of all being. Existentially, he's the ground of the divine human encounter. And eschatologically, he's the, the, the ground of divine hope, to which Peter said, Huh? Now, Peter, Paul says, I, I did not do that. I just preached the gospel. Because that's what changes life. And furthermore, he says something about his manners. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Paul didn't look strong. He didn't look good in front of the Corinthians. Now, I don't like that. I, I don't like to look weak. I always like to look good in front of people. I hate to be caught short and not have an answer or not be prepared. Weakness and trembling is not a style that I can, uh, can identify with readily, but Paul says that's, that was his manner. He didn't try to look polished. Uh, he didn't orate. He didn't come across with uh, what appeared to be human wisdom and knowledge. He simply declared the facts. And in that particular situation, he, he appeared weak. Uh, now Paul was a highly educated man. He was a very brilliant man. He'd gone to some of the best uh, Greek schools. He spoke probably four or five languages. But Paul says he set all of that aside. And his presentation was just very simple. He declared the word of God. Uh, one of my best friends is my brother-in-law, who was one of the charter members of Young Life, one of the founders and staff members of Young Life, that great institution that has worked with high school kids for the past 30 or so years. And on a number of occasions, I've been with Ed speaking at conferences. And what always impressed me is that when he prayed before speaking to these kids, he would say, Lord, I'm willing to look foolish if that's what you want. And that always struck me, because, again, I don't like to look foolish. But Paul said on this occasion he did. People couldn't look at him and say, my, isn't Paul powerful? Isn't he brilliant? Because I looked rather weak and uh, ineffective, and I just preached the gospel. But look at the effect in verse 4. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. That is, God took that simple message and he began to change lives. And people all over the city of Corinth were changed. People who had been swindlers became ethical in their business practices. Adulterous men went back home to their wives. Harsh 
tyrannical fathers begin to love their children and, and do things with them. Homosexuals had their, their orientation on life change. Things begin to happen. Families begin to be healed and, and people put back together and relationships restored in this quiet uh, effect of God at work began to be seen. It was dem demonstrable. You could see it everywhere. Working. My father used to tell me about a, uh, tell me of a woman that he knew who said she was a little concerned about Jesus changing water into wine. That bothered her, and she said, I've never seen anybody change water into wine, but when the Lord Jesus saved my John, he turned alcohol into groceries. See, that, that's, what, that's what Paul is talking about. That irresistible, relentless power of God working in people's lives as Paul just quietly presented the gospel. People began to change. And he says, it's all that your faith should not rest in the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. That was the, the purpose of it all, that these people might learn that it all depends upon God. It's God who changes lives. It's not men. It's God who gives help, not men. All we can do is turn people to the Lord who is their source of help. Paul says, my message was very simple and my manner was not too impressive, but the net result was that God was at work to change lives. Now in verses 6 and following, Paul says, we do speak wisdom, though the world thinks it's foolish. It's wisdom. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Paul contrasts here the wisdom of God with the wisdom that comes from the rulers of this age. Now, he's not referring here to the political leaders of Corinth or of, of the Western world, but he's referring to the opinion makers, the, the people who shape minds, the psychologists and the sociologists and the political scientists and economists, the anthropologists, the people who on the ideas that sooner or later filter out into society and begin to affect our lives. We often think of philosophy as irrelevant and, and purely theoretical, but it has a way of getting down into on the popular level, and after a while we start acting this way, and Paul says the wisdom of God is quite a bit different from the wisdom that comes from these opinion makers, the mind benders and shapers of this world, because it endures, it's permanent. Probably the outstanding characteristic of human thinking, man's thinking, is that it doesn't last very long. The current thinking in psychology today is will be set aside in 10 years. Someone will have another theory of man. But Paul says God's wisdom is permanent. It lasts. It endures. And secondly, he says it's a mystery. It's hidden. Paul takes a term out of the mystery religions of that day. These were religions that came over from the east, from Babylon and, 
Mesopotamian, Syria, filtered into Greek thought. They were secret societies, much like some of our secret societies today, the Masons and others. When you became initiated into that order, then you received the mysteries, they called them. As a matter of fact, our word mystery is simply an anglicized form of, and we made an English word out of the Greek term, mysterion. When you get on the inside, then you know the mystery, the secret handshake, you know, nanu nanu or whatever. And uh, you have all of the inside secrets. Uh, and Paul says, God's revelation is like that. It's a mystery. Hidden. It's not something you find out by observation. That's what he means by this quotation in verse 9. You, you'll note this is a quotation from the Old Testament, from Isaiah. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. You don't find out God's mind, his thoughts, by what you see with your eyes or what you hear. Not can't be discerned that way. You can't find out what God is like through scientific process, through the empirical method of study. You can't put God under a microscope or look at him with a telescope or measure him with a ruler or a laboratory scale. You'll never know anything about God that way. Remember when the, cos the first cosmonauts came back and they boldly announced that God did not exist because they had been in space and they hadn't seen him. Well, of course, even if God were susceptible of that sort of treatment, he might have been hiding behind the moon, but that's, that's not the point. So you can't find God that way. You won't find him in a laboratory or even out in nature by observing nature. You can only go so far. You'll never know the heart of God that way, nor, he says, does it, has it entered the heart of man. Now, in those days, the heart of man referred to the rational faculty, the mind. So Paul is saying you can't reason your way to God. All of the philosophies that, that men expound, sooner or later, run into a dead end because you'll never know God through your mind. Paul says the only way you know God is to love him. All of these things God has prepared for those who love him and who will submit themselves to him. And then you begin to learn the mysteries, the secrets of God, the lost secrets of life. The way to handle guilt and hurt and fear. The way to heal relationships, marriages, difficult situations between employer and employee. Those are the mysteries, the hidden mysteries, which God predestined before the ages to our glory. Paul says if we try to find that wisdom through the rulers of this age, we'll end up where they did. They simply did not understand. They never understood. They never will understand. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That's, that's the sort of cosmic blunder that man makes when he tries to set things right by himself. They, they murdered the man who had the solution to all of life. The man who had solved the problems of living life. He answered all the questions that the philosophers had ever raised throughout all the ages. The Greeks had gone through the entire Greek classical age asking all the big questions of life. These weren't irrelevant questions. And by Paul's time, they had all run to a dead end. Disillusionment, despair had set in. And here came a man who had all the answers to every philosophy. He solved the riddle of life, and they put him to death. 
That's where man's wisdom will lead us. I read a quotation from Dorothy Sayer the other day. She first describes the way the church has really taken the heart out of the gospel, and then she says, To those who knew him, Christ, that is, he in no way suggested a milk-and-water person. They objected to him as a dangerous firebrand. True, he was tender to the unfortunate, patient with honest inquirers, and humble before heaven. But he insulted respectable clergymen by calling them hypocrites. He referred to King Herod as a fox. He went to parties in disreputable company and was looked upon as a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. He assaulted indignant tradesmen and threw them and their belongings out of the temple. He drove a coach and horses through a number of sacrosanct and hoary regulations. He cured diseases by any means that came handy, with a shocking casualness in the matter of other people's pigs and property. He showed no proper deference for wealth or social position. When confronted with neat dialectical traps, he displayed a paradoxical humor that offended serious-minded people. And he retorted by asking searching questions that could not be answered by rule of thumb. He was emphatically not a dull man in his human lifetime, and if he was God, there can be nothing dull about God either. But he had a daily beauty in his life that made us ugly. And officialdom felt that the established order of things would be more secure without him. So they did away with God in the name of peace and quietness. That's the sort of folly that man's wisdom leads us to. They did away with God. But Paul says for those who love him, God has prepared the secrets of life, the mysteries that enable us to approach and move through life with grace and strength and beauty. And he describes that process for us in verses 10 and following. For to us, God reveals them, that is, the things that God has prepared for those who love him, through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Now, the key to this passage is understanding the meaning of the pronouns, us and we, through here. He's referring to the apostles, and this is the process that he describes. For to us, apostles and prophets. God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. You know, God is very profound. He understands men. We don't. Uh, you read contemporary uh, psychologies, and, and apart from their understanding of revelation, they're very shallow and superficial. They may be brilliant men, highly educated, very profound men, but... But there's something very mysterious about man. We simply don't understand man apart from revelation. God's the one who made us, and he knows us, and he understands us, and he has very profound insight into our nature and what makes life work. 
what makes marriages work, what enables a parent to get along with his children and children with parents. God understands. These are the deep things of God. Now, Paul says you would never know the profundities of God, the deep things of God, if God didn't reveal those thoughts. And then he uses a very homely illustration. He says, it's just like you and me. I don't know what you're thinking unless you tell me. No man knows the thoughts of man except the spirit of man which is within me. Uh, I occasionally will be sitting in the same room with Carolyn reading, and I'll stare out the window for a minute, and Carolyn will say, invariably, what are you thinking about? And usually I'm thinking of nothing more profound than I better get up and move the water sprinkler or something, but, but she wants to know what I'm thinking because she can't tell by looking at my face, see? And I can't tell what you're thinking. Some of you are probably sitting there thinking about the roast in the oven or some business deal you got going this week or whatever. And you look interested, but your mind could be a thousand miles away. And, and I would never know unless you told me. That's what Paul is saying. We never know what God thinks unless he tells us. You can't put God under a microscope and find out what God is thinking. He has to tell us. And so what God has done is reveal through the Spirit the deep things that are in his mind to the apostles. What do you mean? For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things. Verse 12, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us apostles by God. That's revelation. God revealed his mind to the apostles. And then those things, that is, the things which God has prepared for those who love him, we apostles speak. Not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts and spiritual words. This is another of those passages that indicates that the words of Scripture are important because Paul says that not only are those concepts, the thoughts in the mind of God are revealed, but also the very words are revealed. So that when the apostles preached or when they wrote, they were writing the very words of God. That means the words are important. Now, Jesus and the apostles always took the words of the Old Testament very seriously. Jesus said, not one jot or tittle will be erased from the law until all is fulfilled. The word jot is the Hebrew word yod, which is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It's about the size of our apostrophe. It's the Y sound in Hebrew, yod. And the tittle is a little mark that distinguishes one Hebrew letter from another. An R looks like this, and a D looks like that, and it's that little point on the end of the D that distinguishes it from the R. That's the tittle. Jesus said even the marks on the words are important, on the letters are important. And Jesus and the apostles were not adverse to building a, an entire doctrine on, on words, the tense, verb tense, on the difference between a singular or a plural noun. Words were important, you see. You see, the process is established. We would never know the mind of God unless God revealed it. He revealed it to the apostles. The apostles preached and they wrote in the words that the Spirit of God gave. And these words are what we have today in the Bible. This is the word of the prophets and the apostles. That's why we call it the word of God. It's the mind of God. Now, Paul says even the process of receiving it, yeah, even in that, we're dependent upon the Spirit of God. Verse 14, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, 
and he cannot know them. He can't know them experientially. He can't enter into them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, he's not saying here that the natural man cannot understand the Bible. He can. As Mark Twain put it, it's not what I don't understand about the Bible that bothers me. It's what I do understand. A non-Christian understands very well what's in the Bible. I just spent the last two years before I came to Boise at the University of California in Berkeley. And uh, for an entire year, I took a course in the late biblical material, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Chronicles, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. And I had the privilege of studying with a scholar from Israel uh, who is the, the foremost person in her field, the late biblical material. Brilliant woman. And everyone in the class, with the exception of one other man, was either an American Jew or an Israeli. And it was very interesting to be involved in these discussions on the Bible and to, to hear them talk about the Bible. They had a very profound understanding of the Bible. They knew exactly what the Bible teaches. They understood it better than I did. They had a better grasp of the data, of the information in Scripture, but they didn't believe it. They didn't appropriate it. They didn't subject themselves to it. So it never changed their lives. And we went through an entire year studying the Bible, and it didn't do a thing for us. It didn't make me a better man. It didn't make me more loving or patient or kind. It just filled my head with knowledge. It didn't make me a better husband or father. That's what Paul is saying. The natural man can understand. It's that he doesn't appropriate, doesn't believe it, doesn't act on it. He doesn't love God in his words. So he doesn't receive anything from it. It's empty and pointless. But, in verse 15, he who is spiritual appraises all things. He discerns all things. Yet he himself is appraised or discerned by no man. The spiritual man is the man who loves God. In verse 9, we're told that God has prepared all things for those who love him. And it's all those who will submit themselves to God. Obey him. Subject themselves to his word. And he who is spiritual appraises all things. That is, he has a basis for making moral judgments. He has a set of absolutes that he can act upon. Never any question. And it's amazing to me that one of the great denominations uh, of our time should debate endlessly the question of whether or not homosexual priests can serve. Now, that's, that, that shouldn't even be an issue. It's worth discussing what our response should be and how we can help these people and what sort of love we should express toward them and how. But to debate the issue of homosexuality it's clear in Scripture. We can say without question that adultery is wrong, that greed is wrong, that materialism is a sin. That's not an issue. That's what Paul says. We can make those sort of discriminating moral judgments about life because we have a basis for doing so. We can appraise all things because we're basing everything on the Word of God. It's God's thoughts and God's opinions that matter. But, he says, he himself is appraised by no man. That is, he's always doing things that people don't understand. Uh, 
Instead of bad-mouthing his wife in the office, as everyone else in, in the office does, he calls her during the day to tell her he loves her. And instead of going to the bar after work, he goes home to play with the kids. And people can't understand. That doesn't make any sense. They don't understand it. C.S. Lewis, in his uh, novel, Till We Have Faces, describes a young woman who, who married a prince, a prince, and he had a castle, a lovely castle, and, and she ate at his banquet table every day. And they had this great love relationship, great marriage. And all of her needs were met. The only problem was the prince was invisible, and so was his castle, and so was his banquet hall. And they never saw any of these things, and so they thought she was insane. Because she kept talking about her lover and, and how he provided for her needs and how rich and sumptuous his table was and what a lovely palace they lived in and no one else could see. They thought she was, she was crazy. And that's what people will say about us. Because we'll walk to a different drumbeat. We have a different set of absolutes. We'll act in a different way. We'll be tolerant when other people are intolerant. And we'll be intolerant of things when other people justify them and rationalize them, you see. And we'll be kind and loving to the poor and the ugly and the disfigured and the unfortunate and the oppressed when other people won't be. We'll have a set of convictions when others won't. See, that's, that's what enabled Luther to stand as a diet of worms there in that, that great palace on the Rhine and really uh, turn the course of history uh, to say, unless my conscience is taught or converted by Scripture, I will not change or recant anything that I have written. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. See, then that, that action turned the course of history because he was basing his life on the Word of God rather than the wisdom of man. Another fine old character from history, Athanasius, who came at a crucial point when the nature and person of Christ was in question and the entire theological world was departing from Scripture in their view of the person of Christ. And as he stood before that tribunal, the judge said, Athanasius, you pertinacious old man, don't you know that the whole world stands against you? And Athanasius said, well, then I stand against the whole world. You see, that's the kind of conviction that God gives us when our roots are down into the Word. He who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. And that reminds Paul of an Old Testament passage in Isaiah 40. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ? When Isaiah raised that question, it was a rhetorical question. The answer to which was, no one does. We don't have the mind of God. How can we instruct, instruct God? But Paul updates that quotation somewhat. And his response is, we do. Who has the mind of the Lord? We do. Not that we know everything, but we have the mind of Christ revealed in Scripture by the apostles and the prophets. We have the mind of Christ. Now, he's not saying that that's some automatic process that, that comes when we receive Christ, that we automatically have the mind of Christ. In context, he's talking about Scripture. This is the mind of Christ. And if we want to look at things from God's perspective, then we'll know the Scriptures. We'll read them, and we'll study them, and we'll memorize them, and we'll embrace them. 
and we'll act on them and we'll use them to base our business and our family and our personal lives on. That's what it means to have the mind of Christ. It doesn't come through visions and dreams and hunches and urges and moods and whims. It comes through the Word of God. That's how we know the mind of Christ. And if we love God and we're subject to Him and we're spending time in His Word, then we'll act like Christ acted in the world, you see. We'll be loving to the oppressed. And we'll be frank with the rich and the powerful. We'll be different from all the world around us as Jesus was. And the world won't understand us any better than they did the Lord. But we'll be like Him. And that only comes from the knowledge of the Word. You don't absorb that by osmosis. It involves a, a commitment to get into the Scriptures, to set aside time on a daily basis or a regular basis. Invest your time to get to know this book, to study it carefully, to memorize it, and begin to act on that basis. I have a friend whose great-grandfather, I guess, his grandfather, had a ranch just outside of Long Beach. And if you drive through that area today, there's oil wells all over the place. I'm sure you've seen it. It's one of the richest oil fields in the United States. It certainly was the richest before the Alaskan fields came in. And my friend's grandfather died in abject poverty. He died in a home with no one to care for him, no money. He lost his ranch. He lost everything. And all those years, he lived over the richest oil field in America, but he never plumbed the depth. He didn't know it. And that's what we have. We have a wealth of wisdom here. And many of us are just living on the surface. We're listening to what other people tell us, and we're listening to tapes or whatever, but we're really not getting into the Word into the deep things of God. I was over here at the BSU library the other day and saw a kid sitting on the front steps reading a funny book, and it just struck me as humorous. And here is the wealth of, you know, the wisdom of the ages in, inside the library, and he's reading a comic book, and I think that's the way some of us are living our lives. So may I urge you to be disciplined? God gives that discipline to get into the Word, to learn the mind of Christ, and then by means of the Spirit of God to begin to act as he act, acted in the world. As Jeremiah puts it, Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy word is unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Let's stand together, shall we? Pray. Father, our hearts always respond when we, uh, when you speak to us, about something that we know we should do. And we're always reluctant to make vows or to determine that we're going to do something because we know our weakness, but we ask that you would, would grant to us, give to us the determination and the discipline to make whatever time is necessary in our busy days to get to know you and to plumb the depths of your wisdom, to learn to live life as you have determined that we should live it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.